Well, thank you for worshiping with us today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, I'm Micah. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are finishing a a short series of messages today looking at uh, Leviticus 1 to 5, which are are five different Old Testament offerings. Um, And so we'll kind of return to that today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 4. Maybe never heard of a sermon on Leviticus, but we'll be in Leviticus chapter 4. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and worship you today. But we're doing something that Christians have always done, which is come together, confess and sing about uh, the glorious gospel truths that we get to experience, but also to hear from you through your word. And Lord, we know that the main way you communicate to us is through your word, and the things that you communicate to us are a blessing, and we need them. We need to hear from you today, and so we ask your spirit to come and fill this room and do the work that only he can do of of giving us eyes to see, giving us faith to understand these things and believe these things, to be convicted of sin uh, or to shine a light of the truth of the gospel, maybe in corners of our hearts where we're hiding from you or, or justifying sin in our lives. So do a good work, Holy Spirit, today. To that end, Lord, I also pray that you would be glorified and that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, this is Confession Sunday, and I want to share with you one of my most embarrassing and shameful moments of my life. Um, I was probably in second grade. Now, I'm going to stop there. I don't know how old I was, okay? I know that I was older than kindergarten, okay? So this was shameful. And I know, I, I think... I was not in sixth grade, okay, because that would be weird. So this is in the category of shameful, okay? So, I, so we're going to say I was in second grade. I was visiting my grandparents. Now let me stop there for a moment. You guys didn't know my mamma, but mamma was, uh, she was very put together, okay? She was very clean. Her house was clean. Her car was clean. I don't think I ever saw a dirty dish in her house because the dishes got dirty. She cleaned them and she put them up. She was, uh, she was very prompt. And just to give, you know, a picture of this, one day my, my dad had a brother that was one year younger than him, okay? And so they're digging in the yard, but like back to back. And if that sounds like a cartoon, it, it goes where you think it's going to go. So dad swings the shovel back, hits his brother, blood pouring out from the head, and Mamma doesn't respond like a normal person, okay? So we're all normal people. Here's how you should respond to that moment. Blood coming out, put something on the blood to stop the bleed and get them in the car, and you get them to the hospital. That's not what Mamma did. What Mamma did is she made them both go clean up, like take a shower, and she emphasized putting on clean underwear. And so maybe she knew them better than we know them, but that's who Mamma was. She was very put together, okay? So I'm visiting my grandparents' And I did something utterly shameful. And worse, Mamaw saw it, okay? She caught me doing this utterly shameful thing. And again, I'm a second grader, okay? Let's keep it in that category. I was not, I don't think I was in kindergarten. I'm really confident I wasn't like in sixth grade. We're going to say second grade, okay, kids? I was in second grade, but it was shameful. I picked my nose, looked at the booger, and I ate it. I confess today that I was a booger eater, 
it's embarrassing, it's shameful, shameful to admit that, okay? And worse, again, my put-together grandmother saw all of this. Now, what happened next? I have a big group of young guys leaving on the booger story. This is Holy Spirit conviction. I'll tell you something, man. Knuckleheads, man. Shame. Just shame going on. Here's what Mama did to help you guys, okay? She did something that I can still picture. It startled me. It scared me. It shamed me all at once, like that fast. Her eyes got huge, and here's what she yelled at me. That was the most disgusting thing I have ever seen. Don't ever do that again. Yes, ma'am. And there was a yes, ma'am at the end of that. And I, I was so startled and scared. I yes, ma'am. And for the record, I have never eaten a booger after that. Okay? Here's my point. My mamaw shamed me that day. And that was a good thing. Amen? Right? Grandmothers? you see these little guys eating their boogers, you shame them, you shame them, and you put them in their place. You don't want to be on 16 and on a date, okay, and you're still doing that. Now, listen, I know none of our Redeemer kids would ever do something so shameful, okay? However, looking back at that moment, there is a place for a good shaming of shameful things. Are you with me? Stay with me on this idea. We are in the business of, in this world of taking things that are shameful and saying they're not shameful. Now, you know it's not true. Everybody knows it's not true. And you know why? Because you then struggle with feelings of shame in those moments, right? And, and the Bible doesn't let us turn unshameful things into into shameful, like it doesn't let us do that. It, it calls balls and strikes on these things. The Bible is very clear. And listen, the Bible is not like some uh, Islamic shame culture thing. And that's not what I'm advocating today. But the Bible understands that sin is sin. And there's ramifications for that. Sin is real. Sin corrupts our relationship with God. Sin disrupts our relationships with others. You could say that sin dirties our souls. There's a sense that when we sin or when someone sins against us, it takes us to this place of feeling shame. We, we, we know that to be true in that counseling office. And there's theology and truth behind it that validates what the Bible is teaching here, okay? We, we're in this series on a solution to shame. And we've leaned on Ed Welch as a, a, a counselor, his definition of shame. Ed Welch says that shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Therefore, shame is this feeling we feel when we believe that we're unacceptable or we believe that we're unclean. When we believe that we're a loser, these feelings of shame follows. Leviticus 4 and 5 is all about what Christians do after they've been accepted by atonement, burnt offering, Leviticus 1, after all that, yet we still struggle with shame. The, the, the sin offering and the guilt offering that we're going to look at today, it's all about God graciously purifying those who have already been accepted. Now, if, if you're new with us today, 
we're, like I said, we're in this series on Leviticus 1 to 5, and we're looking at the, the five Old Testament offerings. These were offerings initially given in the tabernacle, later in the temple. We looked at the burnt offering from Leviticus 1 a few weeks ago. Then we looked at the grain offering and the peace offering. And today we're looking at the sin and the guilt offering. From Leviticus 1, we learned that God accepts us through atonement. Now, if you're a Christian and you're thinking cross, that, that's right. That's where your mind needs to go. And, and the point of that connection is, is that God has always accepted us through atonement. That, that's his theological solution to shame. So when you feel unaccepted, you're to go back to that just deep, firm, theological truth of, wait a second, I am accepted. Jesus atoned for my sin, and, and with that, I became accepted. That's a theological truth that we, can, that we can look to as a solution when we feel shame. But the next two offerings are what I kind of categorize as spiritual solutions. These other things that we can do as solutions to the problem of shame. And when we looked at two weeks ago the grain offering and then the peace offering, we saw that uh, God uh, calls us to faithfully follow him as a solution to shame. And we saw that, listen, if, if we're faithfully following him, we're not committing the sins like we were before then we're not experiencing some of the shame that is attached to those sins. And we also saw from the peace offering that, that we always have communion with God. So we're always to run to Jesus in those moments where we feel shame over our sin. So we have both truth and tools as solutions when we feel unacceptable. But Leviticus 4 and 5 as well, and, and depending on the translation you have, sometimes they categorize this as, most versions uh, uh, have the guilt offering as part of chapter 6, the first seven verses. Some of it keep it in chapter 5. But, but these uh, two offerings were mandatory offerings, and they kind of overlap. They're very similar to each other. But, but they were meant to purify all kinds of sins, inadvertent sins, sins of omissions, intentional sins, uncleanliness sins, sins that made you unclean. They were meant to purify for all kinds of sins, for all kinds of people, for the priest, uh, for the congregation, for the leaders, for the commoners, as well as to provide an op opportunity for restoration. So these offerings are going to teach us that even though we've already been accepted by atonement, Leviticus 1 burnt offering, God continues to purify that's the sin and the guilt offering. He continues to provide purification for us. So he has accepted us, but he also continues to purify us. The first thing I want you to see from the first part of uh, Levitic Leviticus 4, we're going to look at 1 to 12, and we're going to skip around a little bit today. But the first thing I want you to see is to run to Jesus for continued purification. This is the longest section we're going to read, but let me read Leviticus 4, verses 1 to 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any way of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. Verse 5. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull, and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord, in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord, that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall 
pour out at the base of the altar a burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 8. And all the fat of the bull of the sin of offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and all the fat that is on them, the, on the loins and the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove the kidneys just as these were taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the, of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 11. But the sin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry aside uh, the, the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. We're covering a lot of Bible today, and I normally read every passage of everything, but there's a lot of repetition in this passage. So we're going to skip a, a little bit, and, and those, uh, some of these passages are redundant. So, so what I want to do is just kind of look at some key observations from these two offerings, uh, and, and, and they'll apply to kind of all the sections. The, the first thing I want you to see is the issue being addressed by these two offerings is the issue of purification. These offerings provided God's people an opportunity to be purified for their sins. They purified God's people. The second thing I want you to notice is I'm trying to choose my words carefully in referencing God's people. You see, the people that participated in the sin offering and in the grain offering, they were God's people. To, To put it in Levitical framework here, they were ones who had already done the burnt offering from Leviticus 1. They were the ones, in other words, who have already been accepted by the atonement of that offering. Like they're good with God. They're they're accepted, yet they're continuing to struggle with sin. So they need to, uh, God's people need to continue to be purified by the Lord. My point is, is that God's people still struggle with sin. That should be duh for God's people, right? Like we instinctively understand that, okay? If you're a child of God, if you've been born again, if you've been bought with a price, if you've been accepted via his atonement, if you've been forgiven, if you've been redeemed, if you've been born again, if you've been moved from this category of being an object of his wrath to being a vessel of his mercy, if you're an adopted son and daughter of God, beloved by him, if you're a Christian on your way to heaven, you're still going to struggle with sin. And if you still struggle with sin, you're going to struggle with the the effects of sin, which is shame. You're still going to have those seasons where you struggle with shame. Now, it's it's certainly true that we can feel acceptable and worthless and a loser. It's certainly true that we can feel those things after becoming a Christian. And, and, And as a result of that, we can, again, still just struggle with sin and with shame. And we need to believe real truth in that moment, right? In that moment, as we've talked about, when you feel totally unacceptable, you need to go back to that firm theological truth that I am accepted based upon what Jesus has done for me, based upon the atonement that he's given me. However, those sin struggles in some real sense can dirty our souls. Even though we're truly and eternally clean, we can, in in one real ultimate sense, but in another sense, we, we can struggle with a dirtiness to our souls, if you will. Okay, we still need continued purification. The the key truth that I want you to see uh, uh, through the sin and the guilt offering is that God continues to purify. He's atoned and he continues to purify. He's accepted you through his atonement that's been won and done on the cross. 
He's extended you mercy and grace, but he also makes covenant promises with you to continue to purify, to continue to forgive, to continue to restore, to continue to clean, to continue to wash. It's like waves and waves and waves of mercy continue to come at your direction. This is covenant promises of God. And this is the good news of Leviticus 4 and 5. That not only have you been accepted through atonement, but that he promises to continue to purify you of all the sins that you'll continue to commit. But the third thing I want you to see is that God is committed to purify all kinds of people. He's not just uh, committed to purify the cool kids or a certain class of kids. Like, he, like he's committed to purify everyone. And that's the whole point of the structure, especially of, of chapter 4, where he starts with the priest, and then he goes to the whole congregation and the leaders. And if you skip down and look at these verses, he, he concludes with the common people. He's committed to purify all kinds of people. It doesn't matter who you are. God is there to purify you of all your sins. Now, this truth also highlights that, that, um, that all Christians need Jesus' ministry of continued purification. All Christians do. If you're a Christian, you need this ministry. All Christians still struggle with sin, and as a result, all Christians still struggle with shame. Even the priests, even the leaders who make the sin and guilt offerings. In a similar way, even pastors, even elders, even deacons, even small group leaders, even moms, even dads, even board members, even teachers, even coaches, even community group, or even community leaders, they all need continual grace and purification from Jesus. All of us need this. No one has arrived in the sense of we're beyond the need of God's mercy still. And further, I think it's also important to highlight by talking about the priest here and then moving to the common people, it, it highlights that our sins affect other people. And this is one of the most awful things about sin. Your sin struggles, which you will struggle with, they affect the ones you love the most, don't they? They affect your spouse. They affect your closest friends. They affect your children. They affect your coworkers, right? The, the, your sin affects those people. And God understands that's an aspect of this. The priest's sin affected the entire nation. So he was purifying them, he was ministering to them, and as a result, blessing all the people that sin had corrupted. The fourth thing, the fourth thing I want you to see is that he is committed to purify not only all kinds of people, but all kinds of sin. And he gets in the weeds of it here. Like he talks about inadvertent sins, sins of omission, intentional sins, all kinds of sins. All kinds of sin, he continues to apply this ministry of purification. So there are times that people sin in ways that they don't fully intend to sin, right? Like they don't really intend, it's almost like these oops moments. Like I do this constantly, I'm sure I'm constantly like offending somebody around here, unintentionally, right? Like, like we, we do those things. We all like have these sins where we struggle with something, maybe unintentionally. God continues to minister there. We also have these struggles of sins of omission, and I certainly struggle with this. Like those moments where, you know, you have an opportunity to say some gospel truth to somebody, and maybe out of fear or lack of love, you just, you kind of shrink back and you, you just don't say anything. There, there's these sins of omissions. And then most of our sins are these intentional sins, and, and maybe sometimes it's sins of uncleanliness. But the fifth and final thing I want you to see is that sin leaves us unclean. Now, when we commit a sin, it doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. But, but in some real sense, and this is the, maybe the best way I can think of it, is that our souls are dirty in some way. It, it's dirtied our souls in some way. Christian faithfulness 
leads to clean souls, that lead to greater faithfulness, leads to closeness with God, and re- resulting in joy, right? Like when you think about those moments, you've just been walking faithfully with the Lord, it leads to those things, then it closeness to the Lord. It leads to greater faithfulness. It leads to greater joy. But, but then when we get in these other seasons of life, right, where, where you're maybe justifying sin, you're committing these sins, well, then that leads to other sins. Then all of a sudden you just don't want to read your Bible anymore. It feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You don't really want to go to church anymore. Those worship songs don't stir things. And then you find you're not at a place of joy. Like all of those things are connected. So in a sense, sin leaves us unclean. Therefore, we need Jesus to come in and have a present cleaning ministry. We need him to continue to clean. Now, in the interest of time, I want to pick up the pace here. But but as we saw in in these first 12 verses, this is talking about the priest. Starting in verse 13 to 21, he deals with the purification offerings for inadvertent offenses of the entire congregation. Then starting in verse 22, he deals with these inadvertent offenses of a leader. And then in verse 27, it's these inadvertent offenses uh, inad- inadvertent offenses uh, for common people. All of these sections are, are, are really similar, but the purpose of Leviticus 4 is to, again, to explain the mechanics or the logistics of this sin offering. But the point of it is, is that for God to have this continual purifying, cleaning ministry of his people, people who've already been accepted by atonement, they still struggle with sin, but God continues to purify The second thing I want you to see is that we are to run to Jesus for purification from all kinds of sin and all kinds of struggles. Let's skip down to Leviticus 5, and we just want to read the first six verses. Starting in verse 1. If anyone sins and that he hears a public uh, adjuration to testify, and and, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass or an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has has become unclean and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanliness or or whatever sort of uncleanliness may be uh, with which one becomes unclean and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when, it, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt of any of these things, when he realizes his guilt of any of these things and confesses his sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his, for his sin. Leviticus 5, 1 to 6, it addresses this sin of omission. And, and, and it, it's related to uh, really pushing into this idea of uncleanliness. So there's this category in the Old Testament of clean and unclean. Now, now certainly we can commit sins of omission, Meaning we can sin by doing something that we ought not to do. And we can also sin in ways to where we don't do what we ought to do, right? However, in the Old Testament, it also has these uncleanliness laws. Now, we understand sins of omission and active sin. We understand that a little bit better. But sins of cleanliness and uncleanliness, those are more foreign categories from us. I think the best parallel that I can find, and I've seen this in counseling and with friends who've been here, 
But, but in short, uncleanliness, uh, it's these intentional sins or these sins of omission that are in this category that somehow pollute the person in some way. Now, here's the parallel. If you have a friend or, may, or maybe you're here, maybe you haven't done anything wrong, but someone has sinned against you, and especially like it's, when it's in that category of abuse, when someone has abused someone else, okay? So when someone's been abused, they haven't done anything wrong, but, but our psychology is, is we then, that person then struggles with shame in that moment. And we sit in that counseling office, it's a lot of unpacking, like, you, you know, you haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, I know that, but I feel, I feel like I've done something wrong. I, I feel shame. I feel these things. That, that's just one of the things that, that, that happens when people sin against us is that we struggle with shame. And so I think there's a parallel there to even these things that, that we touch or, or touch us. Even if we don't want them to, it, it leaves us in this category of feeling unclean. The, the point is, is that God has made a way even for those things. Maybe it's a sin struggle. Okay, or, or maybe it's just this other kind of struggle where we maybe didn't even do anything wrong. Somebody did something wrong to us, but we're still struggling with this shame. God steps in and, and does ministry to us in those moments. Now, now, here's the good news that I want you to hear today. Those things that you have done or those things that have been done to you, they're not determinative of your future. Like, you don't have to be held in bondage to them for the rest of your life. Like, it doesn't mark, okay, this is always going to define me. And the reason being is, is that God steps in and ministers and purifies and cleans on both of those categories. If we're struggling uh, because of sin or maybe we're struggling because of sin that's done against us, no, no matter the cause of the shame that we feel, Jesus is committed to stepping in and making us whole again. That's the hope of those things not holding us in bondage forever, of not always defining us. Our worst moments don't always define us. God can make you clean again. God's committed to always purifying you. God's committed to no matter what sin you have, no matter what struggle you have, no matter how you're held in bondage to your shame, Jesus is committed to purifying you. He loves you enough to purify you of all kinds of sins, of all kinds of struggles. Therefore, run to Jesus for purification. Run to him no matter the sin, no matter the struggle. Run to him because he always faithfully purifies. Isn't that good news? I, I think it gets better here. I want to skip down to Leviticus 6, 1 to 7. And I want us to see that we're to believe in his purification to the degree of restoration. Leviticus 6, 1 to 7. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of in, in any of all of these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he, is, he shall restore it in, it, uh, he, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Verse 6. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. Verse 7. 
and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the thing that, that one may do and thereby become guilty. I think these last two sections, and maybe the, you know, all of Leviticus highlight this, is that God is calling us to a righteous, ethical life. Like God calls us to live that way. He wants us to have righteous, ethical lives. The Bible calls us to both a vertical spirituality, like how we relate to God. But the Bible also calls us to a horizontal spirituality, to live righteously and ethically with other people. And it gives us guidance on what we're supposed to do in those moments when we're not living that way. Like the Bible doesn't leave us in in like vague platitudes. It gets down to tangible life change. In other words, you know, the guy can't say, yeah, 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 I, I love my wife and kids more than anything in the world. And then he lives this selfish life that that does not prioritize his family. The Bible is clear that God purifies us of sin and struggles, but he purifies us in order to live pure lives. The the point of the guilt offering is that if we have wronged someone, we need to make it right. We need to go to them. We need to seek forgiveness. We need to admit our sin against them. And we need to work to make it right in some way. God has purified us in order to live pure lives. Therefore, when God purifies us from our sin of stealing from someone, there's a call to make restitution to them, to, to restore what was lost. If you remember 1 John 1.7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Taking that backward, his blood cleanses us so that we can walk in the light. And what that means is, is that we are to fellowship with one another. So when we walk in purity, then we can have these uh, right relationships with others. But then when those relationships are off, the blood of the cross is meant to make those relationships right. He cleanses us from all of our sins so that we can walk in the light. When you experience the blessing of his cleansing, believe it, believe in his purification to the degree of restoring what has been broken. That's hard to do, but but believe it to that degree. People who are free from the bondage of sin and shame and then experience the, they then experience the freedom of making things right when they've harmed others. How has he extended you grace? And how based upon that grace, that he's extended you, how are you then extending that same grace to other people? Hebrews 9.22 says that, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's always been the case that sin costs something, right? It's always been the case. Atonement costs something. Forgiveness costs cost something. My, my bitter tribe, you're my people. If you're bitter, forgiving somebody costs something, doesn't it? Like, like sin costs something. Atonement costs something. Forgiveness costs something. However, the good news is that God has always paid the cost. He's always paid that cost for all kinds of people, for all kinds of sins. And further, the really great news of this Leviticus passage is he promises to always to continue to pay the cost. He continues to purify. His ministry is not one and done with you. He continues to purify. Maybe some of you need to experience his purification for the first time. 
Maybe some of you need to experience his purification again. The shedding of his blood is our solution to shame, not only for eternity, but also for today, that shame we experience today. Unbeliever, if you're here and you're not a believer, he offers you acceptance through atonement. He's dealing with your shame. He's dealing with your sin. He offers an eternal solution to that. Those ways that you feel unaccepted, maybe it's due to what you've done or maybe it's due to what someone's done to you. He offers acceptance, eternal acceptance, bought with his own blood. He's that land, that unblemished land where they put their hand upon it and transfer the guilt on it. He offers that for us. He's the ultimate eternal solution for your shame. But Christian, if you're here today, you need to know that he accepted you through atonement. You know that your ultimate eternal solution for shame is that acceptance through atonement. However, what do you do when you still feel unaccepted? What do you do when you still feel that shame? What are you believing about uh, are you, do you really believe that you're a failure or you're a loser, you're uh, unacceptable? That's going to lead to these feelings of shame. Friend, that same Jesus that accepted you once and for all, he continues to accept you. And, and let's be really clear about this. He continues to accept you at your worst moments. Your worst moments. He's right there accepting you, purifying you, cleansing you, loving you. That same Jesus that purified you for eternity, he continues to purify you today. He promises to keep cleaning. He died to cleanse you of your worst unclean moments. And his gospel is is as good today as it was when you were originally converted. He's still cleaning. He's still purifying. He's still ministering to you. I believe the gospel gets even better even after that moment of conversion because he continues to pour out these waves of grace upon us. Friends, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you have thought, receive that purification from him. Ben had cerebral palsy, and much of his life was confined to a a wheelchair, but but there were seasons where he was strong enough to get around uh, with crutches. But, but But he spent so much of his life in hospitals or in doctor's office he, he always, just even as a kid, he always just felt different and left out. Like you couldn't participate in the games or the sports that the other kids were playing. And, and he just, he felt unacceptable. He just felt different, right? And, and that led to, you know, uh, and he, he had stru- um, uh, struggles with his speech. And, and so that caused him to just be even more introverted. So he was just even more left out because he just had struggle, uh, difficulty just talking with people. So all that left to these left him in these powerful moments of feeling unworthy, of, of, of feeling shame in those moments. And he had these great seasons of shame. However, his father was really, uh, really determined to do his best to uh, provide for Ben just a happy childhood. And, and he deeply loved his son, and he wanted to be with him and for him through all the ups and downs. He wanted to keep him healthy. He wanted to keep him active. And, and so Ben's dad, he researched just a number of para-sports. Para-sports are these, you know, different sports that different people can play with different disabilities. And so they kind of tried them all. They tried swimming. They tried horseback riding. They even tried cycling. But, but Ben was really drawn to archery, and he just really fell in love with archery. And archery is a great sport for someone with cerebral palsy because, you know, when he was strong enough to be on his crutches, he could, he could still shoot bows and arrows. But even when he was in a wheelchair, he could still participate in it. 
And, it, and, and even when his arms, you know, got too weak to pull the bow back and hold the arrow, uh, Ben was able to hold it with his teeth and pull it back. I mean, it was really cool to watch. And, and Ben just really gave his, you know, so much of his life to this. And, and he loved getting to do it. And he loved getting to do it with his dad. And so they would literally travel all over the country doing these different archery tournaments, these para-sport archery tournaments. And, and uh, you know, he was always with him. And Ben kind of evolved into a really good athlete. And, and he had a lot of fun with it. He won trophies and medals and ribbons. And it was this thing that just kind of gave him confidence that he needed. It was just this great thing of, of, in kind of those developmental years where he just needed that confidence. The other great benefit of archery for Ben and his dad is it was this thing that they could connect over. Like it was this thing that they could talk about. Just through all the ups and downs, his dad was with him. And, he, you know, and, and it was just archery became this thing that kind of bonded their relationship. And, and really through archery, it kind of helped him overcome a lot of shame. He, he felt like you know, he had the confidence that he could accomplish these different things. He, he felt acceptable. He felt worthy through it. When Ben was a young man, his father passed away. Now, understandably, it was a crushing blow. But I think as he processed it, he realized just how much he leaned upon his father for acceptance and support and, and encouragement. And it led to this, this uh, season of depression for him. And, and in a moment, just this kind of uh, fit of shame and depression uh, with his mom, he, he talked about reflecting upon his dad and just saying, I, I just wish I could have been a normal son for my dad. He, he just, he wanted a normal son and, you know, he didn't really want to go to all those tournaments. He didn't want to participate in all that with me. And, and once again, he just, he felt foolish. He felt like just a little elementary kid struggling with shame and feeling left out. And he was just so embarrassed and felt so worthless, all the things that he had dragged his dad through. But those comments and his mother's response really changed his life forever. She did something really wise and insightful in the moment. She told him to to look at the, the wall of pictures. They, they had this wall in their house, and it was all these pictures from all the archery tournaments that they had participated in. It was all these pictures from different places and holding different trophies and ribbons. And, and she told Ben, I want you to look at those pictures, and I, want you to, I just want you to look at your dad in those pictures and, and tell me what you see. Ben stopped and looked at all these pictures of his father, and all of a sudden he noticed this theme, and he said, you know, Dad's smiling in all those pictures. And that was exactly what she wanted him to see. She went to, on to tell him that, you see, you know, uh, he wanted to be there in all those moments. Ben's dad wanted to be at those archery tournaments. He wanted to be with his sons. He, even through the highs and the lows, when he was down, he wanted to be there. When, when, he, when he won and they had these great moments, he wanted to be there. When he was frustrated, he wanted to be there. When he was celebrating, he wanted to be there. And, and in fact, she went on to tell her son that, listen, those were his happiest moments in life. He loved the road trips with you. He, he loved making friends there. Like he would wear the T-shirts that they would get at these tournaments. When he was lunch, at lunch with his buddies, he was always talking about what you'd accomplish in archery. He, he loved being there with you. In other words, his instinctive knee-jerk desire was to be with Ben through it all. Maybe Ben was not going to be understood and accepted and unconditionally loved by most people in his life. But by his dad, he was. His dad accepted him. His dad wanted him. His dad loved him. Friends, we're all going to struggle with shame at some level in our lives. But in our lowest, darkest moments of feeling unacceptable, never forget that not only uh, do you have a Jesus that once and for all accepted you through atonement, but you have a Jesus that meets you in that dark place. 
He meets you there and continues to purify. He meets you there and continues to clean all of your sin and all of your struggles. He has always and will always make a way of purification back to his presence. Friends, like Ben's father, your heavenly father loves you and accepts you into his family. Your, your heavenly father has made you the way he has made you because he likes you. Let that settle in. The way he has made you, he's made you that way because he likes you that way. He wants you that way. Your heavenly father wants you. And as a result, he promises to keep purifying. And in fact, in kind of a knee-jerk way, his instinctive way, he joys in cleansing you in those moments. It's his heart's desire. And friends, as a result, receive his purification today. Receive his acceptance today. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this seemingly uh, irrelevant passage of Scripture. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats and all of that today. We don't have a tabernacle and a temple, but we do have a Jesus. We have something better. May we be a people that not only believes with our heads that we've been accepted, but in those moments where we don't feel it in our hearts, when we just feel shame and unacceptable and worthless, may we remember that you meet us in those dark places. You're there continually cleansing and purifying, making us whole again. May we believe that not only today here at church, but may we believe it in our darkest moments. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray.